we need to be very careful about where we get our information and who we listen to. On the internet, there's a lot of smooth people on the internet. You don't necessarily, or on television, you don't necessarily know their background. You don't know their lifestyle. You don't know the details of all that they believe. So I want to encourage you, make it a habit that whenever someone teaches you something or someone preaches something to you, that you go home and you look into scripture yourself and you pray and ask God, God, is that the truth? Okay, because all of us could have our own slant on something and we want to make sure that you hear from God. Okay, not that you just trust people. We want to be trusting. We want to be like that, but we want to be wise. Okay, so that's the first thing. There are certain tasks that God calls us to that require diligent examination. And one of the tasks that God calls us to, especially as a pastor, is when we speak on things like relationships and marriage, this is a very important task because it affects your future. It affects your children. It affects your grandchildren. I take this very seriously when we speak on the family. It's also important because Once we start getting something in the back of our minds, it's funny how a little thought gets into our mind and then all of a sudden we keep building on that and building on that and building on that. And before we know it, we may be a long ways from what God's intention was. But because we let this one thought get in our mind, this one distorted belief, it enables us to go down some wrong roads at times. We can feel justified for doing things that God doesn't want us to feel justified for. We can feel condemned for things that God doesn't want us to feel condemned for. To start with today, we need to understand the effects of original sin on individuals. We're talking about families blessed and broken, and we want to understand the effects of original sin on individuals. Eve's one bite set in motion a series of painful consequences that continue today. A part of me says, if only Eve had known that her choice would lead to her son, just in a few years, if she had only known that her choice of taking a bite of that forbidden fruit would lead to her son killing her brother, and the many other painful consequences that it led to, surely she would have done something else. Yet you and I face choices every day that will lead either to wholeness or to brokenness. And not just for us, but for others around us. Eve said, that looks good. That fruit looks good. It's pleasing to the eye. It's desirable for gaining wisdom. I think I'll take a bite of it. I think I'll take a haste of it without realizing how far reaching the consequences would go. And there's times where you and I are faced with temptations or we're faced with choices and we don't always understand the choice that I make now will lead to further brokenness down the road. The choice that I make now will either lead to wholeness or it's going to lead to brokenness. And it doesn't usually stop with me. See, we think we can alienate our choices and I can make one choice here and then this is all the effects that it has. But I want you to understand that the choices that you and I make have a ripple effect throughout time. Choices for good or choices for evil. Sometimes the extent of one's brokenness, we talked about this last week. Sometimes the extent of one's brokenness is not visible until we come into connection with other parts. Have you ever put together one of those 
pieces of furniture that you get in a box. You know what I mean? Like a desk or some type of kid's toy. And you put them together. Sometimes there's pieces of that that are damaged. And when you look at the individual components, they look fine to the naked eye. But flaws are soon revealed when you start to try to connect them together. To the naked eye, by itself, it looks great. But when you try to connect it together, you can notice, wait, this isn't fitting right. That's that's if you have read the instructions, okay, for us guys. This is particularly true. Please listen to this. This is particularly true when it comes to marriage. Here's one of the challenges. According to God's word, God says when a man and woman pledge their marriage vows to one another. Part of the marriage vow is this, that I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you until the day that I die. That's part of the marriage vow. That's one of the biggest parts of the marriage vows. Well, what gives us right at some point to say, I don't love you anymore. And yet that happens time and time again in marriages. That's not what you said. You said, I'm going to love you. I'm going to be committed and love you till the day I die. There's not one of us that whenever we married, if you were married in a church, you said something to that effect. You said that this commitment is to you for a lifetime. And whenever we made those vows and they sealed that covenant with sexual intercourse on their wedding night, God unites them as one. And they cannot be separated without it destroying a piece or a part of each of them. Listen to Jesus' words. Haven't, in Matthew 19, verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, and you be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What does it say? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, I want you to understand this. There is something that happens in the spirit realm when a man and a woman pledge their vows to one another, seal those vows with sexual intercourse. The Bible says God joins them together. God joins them together. Jesus said that. But here's the problem. You have two individuals with wounds and brokenness. And sometimes our wounds and brokenness make it difficult, even though God has joined them together, sometimes it makes it difficult even in that relationship. Because you got two people, God has joined them together, but you got two parts that are in some ways broken. Say this once again, all of us are broken. All of us have been affected by the fall. Not one of us have escaped that. So we look at other people and we say, wow, it must have been nice. But you don't always see their flaws. From a distance, things sometimes look, oh, look how wonderful that looks. But you don't see the trials that they go through. You don't know the difficulties that they face. So one of our major points here is man's brokenness is a challenge to God's intended plan of oneness. This brokenness that each one of us have as a result of Adam and Eve's choices. It becomes a hindrance to God's plan of oneness. It can't necessarily stop God's plan of oneness, but it becomes a hindrance to that. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, let's go back to the beginning and let's see what took place here. Adam and Eve have partaken of the fruit. In Genesis chapter 3, 
God speaks to them. And it says, to the woman, he said, I will make your pain in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. For Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return from the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This portion of scripture is known as a judgment oracle. In Genesis 3.16, the Lord announces that there are consequences to the fall. A major consequence of the fall is that there is going to be conflict between man and woman. And that will become the norm in human society. The natural consequence of the fall is that the norm will be conflict between husband and wife, between man and woman. That's a result of the fall. You think it's that husband that God gave you. You think it's that wife God gave you. No, it's a natural consequence of the fall. Look to the person next to you and say, it's not your fault. It's Eve's fault, Adam's fault. Listen to me. It is a natural consequence of the fall. We have to understand that. You think it's just that idiot husband that God gave you? You think it's that rebellious wife? It's her. It's her fault. No, this is a result of Adam and Eve's choices. God says, as a result of the fall, there is going to be conflict. Some guys read, they read this. It says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband. And Sam, I could just see Sam saying there, yeah. Can you blame her? Can you blame her? Your desire will be for your husband. Every guy is saying, oh, pray, oh, oh, glory to God. That's okay. Her desire will be for me. Listen, before you get all happy, before you get all excited, the word that's used there means to rule over. It's the same word that's used a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 where God warns Cain, he says, sin is crouching at the door and sin desires to dominate you. Sin desires to control you. So this is what the Bible says. Because of the fall, the wife will have a powerful desire to dominate, to control, and to master her husband. Now, guys, don't all smile and say, hey, I don't, right, you know. Some of you wives say, absolutely not. Well, I'm just telling you, this is what God's word says. So your issue is not with me. It's not with your husband. The issue is with what God's word says. God's word says to the woman that this is going to be the result. Your desire will be for your husband. Your desire will be to control your husband, to dominate him, to master him. That's what the word says, that as a result of the fall, that that's the way that's going to be, just like there's going to be a battle between husbands and wives, the desire of the wife is going to be to dominate her husband. 
to the man. As a result of the fall, God said, this is not Steve Ritchie theology, and I encourage you to go home and read your Bible, read concordances, take the time, study the words, investigate it, see what God's word says. Don't just take my word for it. To the man, as a result of the fall, God said this, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taking. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. I want guys to listen to this part, because I believe this is an important part. The fall impacted the way that man provides sustenance for himself and for his family. Initially, man was designed to rule and have dominion over creation. Man was designed to have dominion. He was made to lead. He was made to be over the created things. That was God's initial place for him. The curse impacted that. The ground has been impacted, has been cursed because of him. Work will involve painful toil, frustration, and sweat. Have you noticed that work is oftentimes a major challenge that affects marriage relationships? For many men, the vast majority of their energies are spent eking out a living, trying to succeed in their chosen vocation. Once again, there's this natural desire inside of a man to have dominion. There's this natural desire inside of a man that God gave him. He gave him that instruction. He told him to take dominion. So there's this natural desire inside of a man to have dominion, to rule, to lead. Yet there's going to be these frustrations that arise within his workplace. Because what was the ground? The ground was that which they did not have computer businesses back then. Andy, I'm sorry, they didn't have any garages back then. The way a person provided for himself and his family was going to be from the ground, okay? And so somehow, as a result of the fall, man's labor, his way of making a living has been impacted or affected. Another part of the curse for women, in chapter 3, verse 16, God says to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. What would you think of a husband who said to his wife, or of his wife, I don't understand her. We were having little Landon the other day, and she was yelling and screaming. She didn't have any time for me. I can't understand why she can't be a little more focused on me. I can't understand why she can't be sensitive to me. I wish she could be a little more happy. Why can't my wife smile while she's delivering? When she's delivering, why can't she have a little more joy? I just don't understand it. You know, she's in the back. She's grabbing my arm and squeezing on it. She's saying, let me alone. Get out of here. Why can't she be just a little bit sweeter? If she loved me, she would show it. All the women who've had children would say, you're an idiot. What's wrong with this guy? 
He's a chauvinist. We'd say, no, you need to be sensitive to her. She's giving birth to your child. What's wrong with you? We would understand this and we would say at a certain point, if you don't want to have that pain, we would say women at times say that's enough. One's enough. Two's enough. Three's enough. Whatever your number is, you said, no, that's good. I'm happy with two. There's a certain point where you can make a choice with our medical advances that you can make a choice and you can say, I don't want to have any more children now. I want to take steps so that I don't have any more children because the pain of that And we could say that in the process, when Lori had the kids, she was sick and vomiting a lot. And I'm in the bathroom to clean up vomit. That's not really a fun, I just want to be honest with you. As much as I love you, I I don't. But we would say I'd be a jerk. All of us agree that I would be a jerk if I would say that she should be happy. She should be joyous. She should be excited for this. Why? Because that's a part of the curse. Part of the curse, it's natural. Part of the result of the fall is that a woman has pain during childbearing. It's difficult. What do they call it? A woman goes into what? Labor. Should the man be mad at his wife because she has pain in childbirth? No. We would tell that man he needs to be more understanding. In a similar way, the Bible says that man will have a lifelong struggle with earning a living. It'll be until the day he dies, the scripture says. It says, until you go back to the dust of the earth, man's work and the struggle with his work also seems to be a consequence of the fall. If nothing else, it's very prevalent that you see men struggling with their work and with their job and trying to succeed in the, and the frustration that it brings to marriage relationships. I'm not saying that he should be able to be grumbly and mad and upset because of his job all the time. I'm not saying that that should be the focus of his life, but I'm saying there needs to be a little more perhaps sensitivity towards one another and understanding that these are the consequences of the fall. It's not that she, hey, hey, come on, baby, suck it up. Didn't you see how the Indian women, they would have their baby in the field, throw it in the back and keep planting and picking potatoes or something? You know, corn, come on, suck it up. You know, you're like, no, you're insensitive. I can't believe he would say that. Many things changed in relationships after the fall that were not previously there. It was not God's intention. Rusted. Does anyone have a hair dryer? Yeah. Crystal, look. You know what these are? Nancy got this for me. This is one of those things that you can do the shrink wrap things. Like if you do a gift, you can use a hair dryer on it and shrink wrap these baskets and stuff. I'm going to have Lori bring a shrink wrap, uh, a dryer for the next service. And it, would you mind if we shrink wrapped your head? Sure. <laughs> We're not going to do that. Just put that on. Okay. Does anything look different? Yeah. What's this look? A pink. It looks a pink. Or red. Yeah. A pink or a red. Hmm. Now, everything that you look at. Now let's look at it now. Okay. Look around. Hmm. 
Well, Frank, come on up here. What color are Frank's pants? Black. Okay. How do they look through this? Uh, still black. Still black? What color is this? Pinkish white. Though. A pinkish white? Does it look pinkish? What are you going to say? Pinkish gray. Do you see any pink here? No. How about the tie? Pinkish white. Okay. It's something how everything is impacted. Here's a good way of us seeing it too. Come, come on here. His, his silver tie, white, silverish, white, white, white tie. What's it look now? Huh? Everybody see that? The experiences that you've had in life have a way of shading everything that you see. The experiences, whether they're good or they're bad, no matter how hard you try, you and I are going to view life through certain lenses. What we have to understand is that some of our lenses are not accurate. Okay? Some of our lenses may be broken. Some of our lenses may be tinted a particular color. And so the views that we have of life, the views that we have of people, our understanding of things are viewed through our personal experiences, through the lenses that we look at life through. You know, I was thinking about things like discipline. When I was a kid and we would do something wrong, my dad would spank us and he would use a belt. He would hit us hard with the belt hard. It wasn't something that you wanted. He would hit us hard. My dad was probably, he was about 235 pounds. He's a big man, but this is what he would do. He'd call us up into the room. It wasn't usually us. It was me. It wasn't an us. There's 10 years, eight and a half years between me and John and 10 years between me and Todd. So it was me. He'd call me up into the room before he did it. He would say to me, if you keep doing this, you're going to get a licking. And he didn't mean like an ice cream cone. Okay, he said, if you keep it up, I'm telling you, don't you do that or you're going to get a licking. So he had warned me after he had warned me, if I kept doing whatever I wanted to do, then he'd say, when you get home, you're getting it. And when you go home, he would say, come on, let's go upstairs. We'd go up into his room. He'd sit down on the bed with me. I've told you this before. He'd sit down. He would explain to me, you know why you're in trouble? Because I told you not to do this, this and this. And you chose to keep going on. I'm not going to have a son who doesn't listen to authority. You're going to listen to authority. You're going to obey. It's for your good. Then he would proceed. I'd cry. I'd go, Dad, come on. He would say, this hurts me worse than it hurts you and stuff like that. And I don't know if I believed that at the moment. And sometimes he would pray with me. And then whenever he would get up and he would spank me. And after he'd spank me, he'd always pull out. He had a a big, either blue or red handkerchiefs. I mean, he had some white handkerchiefs. But the ones that had those, like, weird designs, you remember those those handkerchiefs? And he would spank me, and then he'd pull me over and sit sit me beside him, and he'd wipe my nose and wipe my tears away. And sometimes he would even rub on my leg. And he would say, bud, I don't want to do this. But you need to learn. You need to learn to obey. It's important for you. This is good for you. Here he was. He had wiped my tears away. He would comfort me. He would tell me he loved me. So to me, discipline is not a bad thing. I'm thinking, my gosh, who doesn't want someone 
who teaches you, you know, here's the thing. You spank my butt three times with the belt. That's a much cheaper, easier penalty than to not learn the lessons and have to learn them when you get older. To me, discipline is a wonderful thing. He wasn't mad. He wasn't screaming and hollering. He wasn't out of control. He would say, you're going to get it. Now, on occasion, he would bite his tongue. When I look back on that, that's a positive thing. You have people who grow up with different experiences in life, and their view of things, their view of relationships, oftentimes is broken and distorted. Was my dad perfect? No, he wasn't. And neither are you, and neither is your dad, and neither will your children be. We're all broken and flawed people. You and I need to take a clear step back and look at the lenses we are looking at life through. We have views about how husbands are, how wives are. We have views about, and a lot of times it's through the lenses of experience or things that we've seen happen around us. You can't trust a woman. That's what some people say. You can't trust a woman. Why do they say that? Because of the experiences that they've had. You can't trust a man. You can't trust a man. You're not safe with a man. Why do they say that? Because of experiences they've had or because of things they've heard other people say. Not all of the things that we've heard other people say are the complete truth. Not everything that we've heard others say. You've heard all kinds of things. I don't know if we have the time to go into all of that. There's things that that people say that aren't true. There's things that you were brought up in many families and many homes. There's a lot of lies. There's a lot of lies that have been perpetrated. There's a lot of lies that have been spoken about, well, this was, this is how it happened. And we find out later that when you step back and you hear other people that, that what was said and what was spoken and, and what this person was supposed to have done or what they were not supposed to have done are not accurate in the first family. There was jealousy, anger, resentment, and murder. The first family. Adam and Eve could not blame any other the neighbor kids. Listen to this. You know the story. Both Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord. God accepted Abel's offering of blood, but he rejected Cain's. Genesis 4, 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Same verse that we talked about earlier. But you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. God warned Cain that sin wanted to dominate him, to master him. Yet Cain felt justified and little remorse and doing the ultimate violence of murder to his own brother. Instead of living in harmony as a result of the fall, we have criminal activity in the very first family. You know what? There's criminal activity in many marriages today. And the perpetrators feel justified in little remorse, just like Cain did. There's violence in many homes. No man or woman should ever physically harm their spouse. The home should be a place of protection and safety. And let's say this, violent tempers and fits of rage are acts of the sinful nature and need to be brought under the authority of Christ. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, 
Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of God so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Unfortunately, it's not just men who do violence in the home. It's not just men who sin in the home, who have fits of rage. Last week when we read Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, it says, The man who hates and divorces his wife says to the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. God was a witness to their covenant. God said they were guilty because they broke the marriage covenant by divorcing their spouse. God viewed doing this as doing violence to the one they should be protecting. One of the most painful things that a person can say to their spouse is, I don't love you. One of the most violent things, the most degrading things that a person can say is, I don't love you anymore. Is there any words that could be more painful to either a man or a woman than those words that I don't love you. I'd rather walk outside here and have four or five guys just beat the stuff out of me than to hear my wife say those words, I don't love you anymore. I don't want you anymore. And we want to say this, typically because men are physically stronger, they should be a protector of their wives. Yet if you would ride around with the police, you would find that both men and women do violence to one another. This ought not to be. This should not be. There should, it should be a place of security and safety. There's slander in many homes. The way husbands and wives speak to and of each other ought not to be. They criticize. They tear one another down. Leaving out parts of the story that make themselves look bad and focus upon the perceived faults of others. Often trying to turn family and friends and children against the other spouse. This ought not to be. There's fraud in many marriages. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, it says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, or the King James Version says, do not defraud each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So unless you are fasting and praying, according to the scripture, you are not to, the Bible says that when you withhold sexual intimacy from your partner, that that is a form of fraud. And unless you're fasting and praying, being mad at him or being mad at her and withholding sexual intimacy is not the will of God. If you're going to withhold sexual intimacy, it's because you are the two of you are agreeing together to that and for a time of prayer. Yet many husbands and wives withhold sexual intimacy from each other. Husband and wives defraud each other financially. When we got married, when Lori and I got married, the Bible says that the two become one. The two become one. It's not his and hers. It really should be ours. Our finances and everything that we have is ours. 
Well, you know what? There may be a season in life the husband is, if the wife's at home taking care of the kids, you know what? Everything he makes belongs to her. Everything he makes. Because we're a family. We're a unit. The Bible says that we're one. And if there's a season in which the wife is making money and maybe making more money than what she makes is ours. I'm going to step on some toes, perhaps. I don't know. I don't understand. I understand that there's challenges in marriages where there's other children and things like that. It makes it complicated. But God wants oneness. I don't understand it's this is yours and this is mine. Is that really what God intended? Or is it, is it ours? Or you'll see, and, and here, ladies, I don't mean to offend you, but you'll see what he makes is ours and what I make is mine. It's mine. Really? Are some of these things hindrances to oneness? Are some of these things, these ways that we separate and we say, well, that's yours and that's mine, are some of these things, things that come in between us and hinder us from being truly one. Those attitudes, those things do not depict. We could go into many other things that take place in the home. We could talk about adultery. We could talk about the trauma that it is whenever a man pursues the interest of another woman other than his wife. We could talk about the damage that it does when a woman pursues the attention of a man other than her husband. All of these things really are criminal they're criminal. Just like Adam and Eve, their son's actions were criminal. These actions are criminal against one another. This does not depict the New Testament ideal where the husband in Ephesians 5, we read it last week, where the husband sacrificially loves his wife as Christ loved the church and where the wife recognizes the husband's loving leadership in the family and voluntarily submits to it. Original sin produces a conflict or power struggle between the man and the woman. But in Christ, man and woman can call a truce and live harmoniously. But as long as we're standing back and saying, well, I'm not doing nothing till he moves. And I'm not doing nothing till she moves. And I'm going to position myself. I think this is sinful. I've heard of wives who've told their husband, I've been planning this for three years. I'm saying, I love you, Lori. I'll do anything in the world that I can. I'm a broken human being. I have flaws. I have inadequacies. I have blind spots. You have flaws. You have inadequacies. You have blind spots. All of us do. I believe according to God's word. What if we call a truce? What if I will accept you and your brokenness I'm not saying approve of you stealing or committing adultery or doing vicious, horrible things. But what if we both can? And what if on an individual basis, I, and that means you, what if I take some of the first steps in calling a truce? What if I make those steps forward in trying to live out what God's New Testament ideal for the marriage relationship is? What if I quit worrying about protecting myself from her? You know, a lot of times we'll see in relationships where husbands and wives, they'll position themselves for a position of power. I'll control the money. I'll control the sex. In spite of the imperfections 
in spite of all the things that we bring in. And here's the thing. You can ditch this guy, you can ditch this woman, and you think you can start over, but can I tell you what you're going to find? You're going to find another broken person. But what you're going to leave in the thing is more brokenness, not more wholeness. And so what if we, as you leave, what if you make Ephesians chapter 5 your desire? That God, I want to call a truce. I don't want to manipulate or control my wife. I don't want to use power over her. What if we are mutually submitted to God and mutual submission to one another? That's biblical. Mutual submission. I prefer you over myself. I honor you above myself. And that is a type of environment where God can bring about his purposes and his plans. That's what Jesus did to the Father. He submitted himself to the Father's will. The Father didn't abuse him. He submitted himself to the Father's will, and it brought about our redemption. And as we submit ourselves to the will of the Father in our relationships, I believe it'll bring about redemption for marriages and families. I believe it'll bring about wholeness in people's lives. I believe it'll bring about God's kingdom. We could say, God, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come there. What's it look like? It looks like a husband and wife who work together and are united as one, caring and loving and forgiving. Here's the other thing. In any relationship, we got to have forgiveness. If you're going to hold on to the things that she did five years ago, ten years ago, and you're going to hold on to the things he did, you're setting yourself up. The Bible says, they asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my neighbor when he sins against me? And Jesus said, 70 times seven. How many times? That's a day. How many times do you and I need to be forgiving and humbling ourselves to our spouse? What he's saying is that's going to be, you can't do this on your own, but by the grace of God, you can. And it's going to be an ongoing thing that I choose. I choose to think the good about her. I choose to forgive her. I choose to overlook wrongs. That's what love does. Love doesn't keep a record of the wrongs. Love thinks about the good and focuses upon the good. And that's what God has called us to do, to sacrificially lay down our lives just like Christ did, gentlemen. And for the wives, whether we like it or not, whether our society says it or not, the Bible says that you're to honor and respect your husband as the church would respond to Christ. And you say, well, if he would finally get his stuff together. If we keep putting stipulations on when we're going to obey the pattern that God establishes, we're never going to get there. Because as I said, we're fallen, we're broken people. Jesus, I pray that we would have an understanding of how original sin affected us. How there is a battle between, just natural, between husband and wife for dominance. How there's a struggle with man. Man's struggle with his job and wanting to have dominion and yet be frustrated in his job. And Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would bring oneness to our families and to our homes. And I pray that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray if there's anyone here who's in a battle right now, I pray that they would willingly call a truce in Jesus' name. I pray that, they would, that even as, before they leave here today, that they would say to their spouse, I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to war with you anymore. I want to be at peace with you, with God, and in our family. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.